Uh, well, welcome to tonight's after-show discussion. Thank you for staying behind. Uh, many would argue and have argued that ISIS is the biggest crisis of our time. Um, and I think that what's becoming clearer and clearer is that we all have a very important role to play in this crisis. I'm going to do um, a round of introductions very quickly so that we can get into the discussion. Uh, we'll, we'll spend the first sort of half to two-thirds talking in the panel, and then I'd like to get your questions and and thoughts from the audience too. <coughs> so I'll, st I'll start off with myself. I'm Tazine Emmett. I'm a television reporter and writer. I've been covering this story over and over again for the last 20 years for a number of different outlets around radicalization, terrorism, and lots of different issues around Muslim youth. I grew up between Nigeria, Pakistan, and the UK. And in fact, my hometown in Nigeria, where I spent about five or six years, is where Boko Haram's headquarters are now. I've also covered stories from Pakistan and Afghanistan on this very issue a number of times. And I would like to also kind of just draw my personal experience. I am um, obviously of Muslim faith, and I, I grew up in a Muslim family. And one of the things that, uh, when I was think, re reflecting back uh, on when my sort of political awakening happened as a Muslim young person, it was in 1988 when Salman Rushdie's book was published and was being burnt by many young people just like me at that time. And I think that there's two things I wanted to tell you about that. One was that my father, who, is a, who was an intellectual, and he, he passed away last year, who was an intellectual and a historian, and very liberal in his views, but also very personally quite religious, said that we're gonna read this book, you and I. So he went and bought this book, and within a few, I mean, he, he read it first, and then I got perhaps only as far as the first few chapters, when he also took this book into the back garden <coughs> and burnt it. And you know, I, I, you know, at the time I remember feeling quite miffed just because I hadn't got very far into it and hadn't got to the juicy bits. But I think one of the other things I wanted to tell you was fast forward another 15 years and I was working on a story for Channel 4 and Dispatches about um, a school where kids were being taught quite vile ideology, uh, a Muslim school. And I interviewed a whistleblower and the camera crew I was with moved, were moving furniture around this man's house, as we as camera crews tend to do, so we could get the best possible angle. And as we were moving this furniture around, my producer called me over. Ah, oh, that's better. My producer called me over, and he said, look, look at that in the corner. And in the corner, behind this sofa, was uh, the satanic verses. It was this man's dirty secret. And I think what, what both those incidents tell us is that even amongst the most liberal uh, Muslims, there is something around groupthink and, and what your religious identity is. It's very confusing and, and quite difficult, even for the most liberal Muslim. I'm going to introduce my panelists now. So I'll start with, my to my left, David Loyne, who is a legend in foreign journalism, a former BBC international development correspondent, and an expert on Afghan history. He's also, also the author of Frontline and Butcher and Bolt, 200 Years of Foreign Engagement in Afghanistan. Mohammed Tasneem Akunji, a lawyer who specializes in terrorism and human rights and represents the families of the three girls from East London who left to join Islamic State. He also negotiates for those caught up in the conflict in Syria and has written papers and contributed to research on ISIS as well as the government's prevent policy. Jonathan Birdwell is head of policy and research at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which on Twitter describes itself as turning research into action in the fight against extremism. He has authored over 40 reports on topics such as violence, terrorists, non-violent Islamist uh, radicals, counter-terrorism policy, and the role of faith groups in the UK, amongst many others. 
And Richard Walton on the end is a former commander at New Scotland Yard and was the head of the Counterterrorism Command from 2011 to 2016. He spent most of his career in counterterrorism. He held many key positions, notably coordinating the police response during 7-7. He is now a senior associate fellow at the think tank RACI. Welcome to all of you, you're a truly expert panel. It's great to have you here. Jonathan, can I just kick off with you? Can you just give us an idea of the numbers of people from the UK that have gone to Syria? Yeah, so it's, it's really hard to, to, to have, you know, obviously <coughs> very um, accurate numbers and statistics around this, but the, the estimates suggest between 700 and 800 people have traveled from Britain to um, live with Daesh in Syria and Iraq. Um, among those, in terms of the, the demographic breakdown of that, it's, it's extremely difficult to determine. Um, at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, we've been tracking um, on Twitter um, 130 profiles of women from Western Europe um, who have traveled to live and are currently living or were currently living with um, Daesh in Syria and Iraq. So 130 of those profiles, 85 of which were under the age of 25. And the most common age that we could determine among those 130 that we were looking at was actually 15. So we're talking uh, a very young phenomenon. Um, shocking, truly shocking. Yeah. What can you tell us about them, that their lives there? Can you just paint a picture for us of what their lives are like? Yeah, so, so my colleagues, um, uh, Melanie Smith is the, the sort of main researcher on this. And I, and I suggest that you do go and look at her work. But um, she sort of is constantly tracking and archiving um, the sort of tweets that they uh, are putting out and you know with the common age of 15 this is these tweets are a, a window in, into the life of a normal teenager except for the fact that the normal teenager ha happens to live um, in a war zone with um, with a group like Daesh um, and so you see things like uh, you know as you would expect from a, a teenager joking boasting um, uh, the, the men talking about um, uh, sports teams the women talking about kittens and, and you know the, fame, the things everyone talks about, the Nutella. Um, they're trying to present a sense of normality. Um, but you can also read behind the lines and see that uh, you know, the, the truth and the reality and the fact that they are living in a war zone, um, talking about their uh, husbands being killed, um, complaining about a lack of electricity um, and food and water. So you can get a sense of, of how hard it is um, and the hardships that they're facing. But of course, that they are very keen to project a positive image of their life there and in, in, in a sense to, to convey themselves as very normal. They mm. want to, to appeal to other normal teenagers. So the ordinary mm. and the extraordinary Indeed. both at the same time. Tasneem, can you tell us a little <coughs> bit about the girls, um, the, the families that you represent? The girls who left their families to go to Syria, what, what, what were their lives like? Well, they range. Um, it, there's by no means a, a completely mono, uh, sort of monolithic paradigm there. Um, they are all from Tower Hamlets. There are actually four girls who went from that school. One of them had gone in December, uh, sort of to the knowledge of the authorities and what have you. And then uh, in February, on February 17th, the other three had, had gone off to, to join her, basically. So it looks like the first girl was the one who'd actually sort of uh, been the, the trailblazer on that. And, uh, and the others had followed in terms of a friendship circle. Uh, from the school itself, there were a number of other girls who were within the penumbra of the friendship circle and they were then uh, made subject to wards of court for fear that they may also trod the same path, really. Uh, do you know very much about what their lives are like out there? We have something of an inkling. Um, the problem is, is that when it comes to conversations with them, very much like the, the Belgian experience that you've demonstrated on stage, it's, um, 
it appears to be quite edited or certainly very monitored on the other side. So we get a sense that there are some conversations that happen a bit more freer than other conversations. You get the robotic sort of uh, communications. Some questions go out from, from, from the home side and the answers are simply deadpan. There's just, there's just no answer there or, or, a, or a, a fobbing off of, of a question. So there is some sort of editing that happens on, on most calls. Um, whether that's from the husbands or from an actual authority, or, uh, we, we don't know. And we don't dare to ask. Mm, because it's all coming through the filter of social media. Well, not just through the filter. No, because I mean, if you ask the wrong question, they give the wrong answer, they could end up dead. Mm. Um, Richard, what do we know about their motives? What are the reasons these, these young people are going out there? Um, well, there's no one motive. I think, I mean, I think what this play illustrated um, very, very vividly was the complexity of this problem, which is multifaceted. Um, there's not one motive. I mean, some of these youngsters are driven by ideology, and actually they, they absolutely believe it. They've been taught a particular type of Islam, which is through, perhaps through, through a radicalizer in London or, or elsewhere. Um, some are drawn through the excitement because they lack excitement in their life. Um, some go for identity, um, others are disaffected. And I think there's close parallels with this problem, with, with other, other, other social issues like gang, gang uh, criminality, for instance. You know, the same sort of underlying um, socioeconomic factors um, are sort of lying you know, in the background to this problem. And then you have on top of that, you have um, a radicalizing ideology which is very potent um, very, very um, enticing and very convincing. Um, and actually, I've read some of the, uh, some of the literature from, uh, from the Salafist uh, ideology, and this is actually very enticing. It, is, it, it draws you in. Um, so we shouldn't ignore the ideology that, that um, you know, the warped version of Islam, if you like, that's being propagated here. Um, um, that was one of the bits, I think, that the play perhaps could have brought out a little bit more, but notwithstanding, obviously, that a lot of this is, you know, is the climate of of this is, is, you know, it's, social, it's, not, it's not a fluke, for instance, that some of our um, biggest issues are in Tower Hamlets is one of the poorest boroughs in Europe. Um, and so, you know, the, there are many, many different underlying causes for this. There's no one particular motive. But the reason that's often given, David, um, certainly by the recruiters and by the radicals who are persuading these young people to go out there, is um, it's your duty, it's your religious duty, or, or foreign policy plays a big part. Yes, and we've seen, you know, the wars since 2001, which are sort of seen as wars on, on the Islamic world, which is the way that they've been painted and portrayed. And, you know, that came out very strongly with the young people in the, in the, in the play tonight. I mean, you know, I have a very strong sense that, you know, we, Britain's three million Muslims, and <coughs> the rest of us, as it were, are in this together, and, th and that finding some sort of common solution um, to it needs to be needs to be done rather than this terrible division that uh, that, that sort of that, that, is, that, that is coming out at the moment and so that perhaps we could look back at wars before 9-11 so that for example in 1999 when British soldiers went to war it was in order to save a Muslim country in order to save Kosovo you know one of the so-called good wars of Tony Blair's wars of choice before uh, before uh, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and you know and I think in a sense reminding people of some of that narrative, you know, might be a constructive way forward. Can we talk a little bit about, um, I think some of the things that came out in the play were about grooming. And for me, that really stood out because I think 
We've been talking for a long time about foreign policy and about religion and about these kids as the other, but there are kids, aren't there? There are children. They're, they belong to our society. What do we know about the grooming process, Tasneem, and how it works? Well, before we get into that, I think, it's, uh, I think it's right to redress the balance a bit because we, we also have a number of British citizens who've left the UK of their own free choice to go and fight in Syria, but not for ISIS, for the YPJ. So we have a lot of British uh, ex-servicemen and other individuals together with uh, people from the Alavi community who go out and join the YPJ, which is a PKK affiliate organization, also a terrorist organization, and, and fight ISIS. But we're not examining them either. And they're not, certainly not drawn from ideology or ideological reasons. And it may be you know, that this play is more accurate than the top-down policy that we have at the moment, which is that actually, ideology doesn't play a very big role. It is actually circumstance, circumstances and the policies in the region that draw people into that sort of adventure. But in terms of the grooming process, there is one. Um, as, as there is in, in anything, really, um, people want to attract young, bright things over to their cause. And, th and because it's an age group of people who understand, understand the age group that they're aiming at, because we don't, we're just, outside of that age group, frankly. You're too grey, I'm a bit grey as well. We don't really understand Twitter and, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and Snapchat and what have you. Well, yeah, you're all right. <coughs> um, but, but it's because it's older men, mostly, who come up with the policies. We don't understand, really, the underground reality of 15-year-olds and why they're motivated. Richard, do you think that's true? Uh, I think it's partly true. Um, I, I, you know, I, 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 I always struggle with, with us ignoring ideology here because I think that um, th certainly um, that's part of the radicalising that's going on is, is the actual interpretation that is preached and taught. And, and incidentally, it's not, it's not being preached and taught in mosques either. A lot of this radicalisation is going on outside of the mosques um, and it's going on with vulnerable youngsters um, in back rooms away from the establishment, if you like the Muslim, traditional establishment in the mosques. So I think, I mean, but it's, it's very much more complex than we can explain it in, in, in just one or two ways. Um, but, you know, and it also, it, you know, it's very similar to grooming for paedophilia or grooming for to gangs. It's, it's very, very similar sort of concept. Yeah, and actually quite a lot of experts who work in this area have drawn a lot of comparisons between, and I've covered yeah. that story extensively. I see a lot of comparisons mm. that can be made. Um, Jonathan, do you think the grooming, the groo it feels very unnatural. Uh, do you think the grooming process, um, I, mean, I, I mean, aren't teenagers essentially, just because they're teenagers, quite easy victims for this kind of thing? Um, yes, uh, in some ways. Um, I think you can distinguish the grooming process first between the sort of propaganda that's put out there, right? Um, the sort of videos that people are going and watching. And we tend to think of the videos being the really brutal, sort of very stylized and dramatized, um, you know, the, the ones that we come to know about ISIS. But actually, the, the sort of the different themes that they project through their propaganda are very diverse and a lot of focusing on sort of brotherhood or sisterhood or you know creating a state a role for everyone and so there's a, a there's a sort of propaganda and that's out there and then there's sort of the recruiters are looking to see who's who's watching it who's commenting on it who starts swimming in the same uh, networks on social media as others who are more who are already holding those views and then what we see um, is that they are then trying to pick them out and 
bring them into more private one-to-one -one conversations, whether that's through Skype, whether that's through WhatsApp. Um, and it's there that actually the, the sort of grooming takes place um, in the same way that we think. And, and you know, using the same sort of tactics and techniques around sort of guilt, around drawing them in, um, making them feel bad that we see with child exploitation. Um, and what we do at ISD um, is to try and mirror that. And so we've piloted a project where we um, identify people who are openly espousing or supporting violent extremist groups online. And then we have formers um, of those ideologies who reach out to them and essentially try in a private manner and try to just share their own story of how they went down that path and then how they got out of it and why they got out of it um, as a way of essentially trying to mirror the same tactics. Um, to, tr to try and bring them back. And actually, it was just a pilot. We're scaling it up, but we found quite good results. And I think what you see, going back to your original question, is that a lot of teenagers, they're, they're searching for identity. They're searching for someone, something to belong to. Um, and of course, that's what recruiters prey on. And I think it's really important that we really understand this process, that we don't say we can't understand it because we're, we're too old or they're using you know, a system we don't understand. David, what lessons can we learn from, I mean, the, you know, Shiraz Mihir in the play, he talks about the fact that on the one hand, one minute he's trying to get laid as much as possible <laughs> and drink as much as possible, but that he's starting to think about his identity and the next minute he's suddenly involved with this thing. Well, issues around identity are clearly a, a very big part of this role. You talked about that movingly at, uh, right at the beginning in your own life. And I think uh, one of the things that's, that surprised people who've watched, as it were, the growth of of Islamic Britain over the last 20 or 30 years is the extent to which people still uh, return or bring the, the next generation you know, of wives or husbands from relatives back in particularly Pakistan. And I think um, people had expected that by now there would have been more of a sense of maybe not assimilation, but you know, of, of a multiculturalism with, with Islam that would have been more successful. And one of the reasons why I think it hasn't is because of this um, constant sense of double identity. It's an irony of globalization, of course, that you know, because of the internet um, and because, of, uh, uh, because of, of, of cheap flights, it's very easy to get now to uh, Kashmir uh, in a way that it wasn't you know, for the first generation who came here and expected that they'd left it behind. And in Afghanistan, where I was living until last summer for the last two or three years uh, for the BBC, um, everybody is now on, on Facebook. You know, there is more internet penetration in Afghanistan than there is in Pakistan, uh, funnily enough. There's a real sense that you know, this is a country which can see the outside world, so of course they do know what's going on. And I think that's one of the, one of the big challenges. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't like us to get into, I think we're beginning to move into this panel into sort of this is not really about Islam after all. Um, you know, and of course the Paris uh, attackers were petty criminals who were drawn into Islam in jail um, and uh, the people who killed uh, Lee Rigby were petty criminals who were converted and drawn into Islam. But there is clearly in both of these sorts of grooming, in the, in the Rochdale Rotherham grooming of, of young girls and in uh, these uh, people enticed to go off to, to Syria and Iraq, you know, there is something about Islam in it, which is, you know, maybe we shouldn't avoid in this discussion. Mm, but grooming, grooming doesn't just happen within Muslim communities. Grooming happens, happens everywhere. But in those, and those two are very, those two are very particular. But can I just Yeah, I mean, the, the analysis of the people who've gone over to join ISIS show that the most common downloaded book or ordered book is Islam for Dummies. <laughs> so, so, 
if, if it was the case that grooming in terms of religious ideology is the thing that's taken out there, we would have Islamic scholars going out there en masse, not complete novices. Now I'll tell you what the misthinking here is, is that because people um, are listening to the chat of uh, people who go over to join ISIS and ISIS itself in terms of the propaganda, they're hearing a lot of Islamic terminology. But that's not ideology, that's justification, you see. In the UK, in Western countries, when we go and do horrible things to other people, we justify against our legal system by saying it's legal because of this, it's lawful because of this, down to international law, domestic law, and what have you. In the Arab countries, Sharia just means law. They're justifying their, their behavior by legal process. That's why they only know a little bit about Islam. They only know the bit that helps justify their, their action. Yeah. Not, it's not a top-down theory. Jonathan, what's your observation about how much Islam plays a role? Ooh, I, so I tend to agree with you, actually. Um, uh, I think from what we saw, I did a, a big piece of work um, a number of years now ago um, trying to compare violent extremists, so people who got involved in convicted terrorist plots, and nonviolent radicals, so people who might want to see Sharia law in a non-Muslim majority country or wa might want to see the establishment of a caliphate. And what we found was that those who were violent terrorists had a very simplistic, um, shallow understanding of Islam, and they were much more prone to black and white thinking, whereas the nonviolent radical um, was much more considered and you know, had a much better appreciation of the fact that um, these ideas were contested. And you know, there's a long um, and complex body and of the history of um, Islamic jurisprudence and, and thought, and they sort of appreciated that ambiguity, whereas it was the violent extremists who were just immediately convinced that they knew exactly what was right and what was wrong. So, of course, I think, I think you're absolutely right. It plays a justification role. Um, where I think it gets interesting, it's hard to explain, is, is around the, the duty, the sense of the, the, the real sense of duty um, that you have to go, that you really see uh, a lot of young people feel very emotionally and how they t tie that to, to their religion, what they see as their religious duty. Um, so I think it's a perversion of Islam. Um, it's certainly not inherent in it by any means. Richard, Irish terrorism was, w was one of the things you worked on early on in your career. What comparisons or differences have there been? Um, well, I thought the, the play drew it out quite, quite interestingly, actually, about uh, there was, uh, you know, when I started in counterterrorism in 1989, the top six floors of Scotland Yard were full of detectives that were investigating Irish terrorism. And, and if you were Irish at the time in Kilburn and being stopped by the police, and you would have felt quite similar, actually, uh, to how some of our Muslim youngsters feel being stopped by the police in, in, in East London. And, and there's a perception, perhaps, that they're being stereotyped. And of course, you know, that's, that's very real. Youngsters feel that perception. They, they can feel that sometimes that they're being stopped through ports as well, because obviously, you know, a lot of um, Asian men, women, and youngsters are being stopped at the moment. Um, so it's, it's, but it's an interesting comparison because obviously when I, at the same time as I started in 1989, I think there was one desk of six officers dealing with international terrorism, which included at that time Palestinian terrorism, Sikh terrorism, Tamil terrorism, you know, just six detectives dealing with that and six floors dealing with Irish terrorism. So. So I think, but uh, that doesn't mean to say we don't understand, if, if from a police perspective, we do understand you know, the perceptions of, of uh, people if they're being stopped and, and they're feeling, if you like, that they're being discriminated against. I, I genuinely don't think that's the case. Um, it's very hard, of course, if you're the, the officer on the controls at uh, a terminal in Heathrow 
and you're trying to pick out behaviours that are suggesting that someone is um, suspicious and, and someone lo is looking agitated or is sweating. And then if that person also happens to be, you know, if you like, of Asian uh, uh, um, appearance, uh, then they get stopped, they're going to perhaps feel discriminated against. But actually, I would, you know, I would say that it's, it's the context of terrorism at the present time, a global context, which is that you know, at the moment, at this particular point in our history, um, it is Islamic uh, extremist terrorism around the world that's causing the biggest problems. But you know, th this could easily change. It could, this could easily change. In, in 10 years, 20 years time, we could be dealing with a completely different form of terrorism from a completely different uh, context. Tazim, you look like you want to pick up. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that in one year alone, 57,000 people were stopped on a port search under Schedule 7. That's a lot of sweaty Asian people. Um, so, <laughs> so in, in terms of that, that's just frankly nonsense. Uh, the, the, the fact is, is that uh, Schedule 7 doesn't require any reasonable suspicion to stop somebody. You can just stop them. And it just so happens that Schedule 7 is used in a way that stops Asian and black people five times more than, um, than white people. Now, on top of that, we, we, we have the previous experience of Section 44 of the Terrorism Act, which is exactly the same as Schedule 7, just for everywhere else. And we had 147,000 people stopped by that, that, uh, that act alone before it was struck down by the ECHR in one year. I don't think there were that many people sweating in cars and on the streets. But uh, the, f the, f the fact is that um, despite all those stops under a Terrorism Act, not a single person had ever been convicted on a terrorism charge from those stop and searches, 147. Now, to me, that's social engineering through law. Richard, do you think the police are getting this right? Well, if you look at um, the, the, the tr if you like the record of, of counterterrorism in this country in the last 10 years, and we've had one uh, fatality from terrorism since 2005, uh, this dre dreadful attacks 7-7. Uh, uh, and compare that to France and Belgium, where we've had something like 200 people tragically killed in the last two and a half years or so. Um, I would say we are getting it right, or if you like, the police are getting it right. Um, but it's not without cost. It's, uh, you know, a lot of the issues that were drawn out by this play... Well, what, I what is that cost? What is that cost? You said it's not without cost. What is that cost? Well, the cost is, uh, you know, the tragedy of... of much of this at the moment is that, I mean, for instance, I think there have been 360 odd arrests in the last 18 months or so in London alone. Now, probably a third of those are going to result in, in charges. Um, but, you know, every time you make um, an arrest or you go into a house with search warrants, you're, there is a cost. There is a cost to the family. There's a, there's a if you like, you know, it's not, you, you may be going after one individual to arrest one individual, but there's a wider family that's in that house when you go through the door. Um, so any police executive action or, or use of police powers um, has, you know, it, it, it risks uh, damaging individuals along the way. And, and we're very, very mindful of that uh, when we use our powers. We try to use them proportionately. Um, but, but I'd say that the, the gain of what's happened over the last 10 years is that we've not had any terrorism in this country. We've had one, one terrorist attack in 10 years. Um, and I mean, the, the play drew out the terrorism legislation uh, in this country. Um, we have got very good and very strong terrorist legislation in this country, um, but it's now being replicated and actually 
copied around the world, uh, that legislation, because other countries are now looking to the UK as an example, as an example of, of a country that's actually got it right in terms of counterterrorism. Jonathan, do you think um, the government's getting it right? Uh, yeah, it's such a tough, it's really it's such a tough one. I mean, I, what we try to do is, is tread a, a sort of third way, really, because there's this sort of, I, I, think, I think the government, I think Char the Charles Farr, former director general of OSCT, um, who was in the play, I, I think one of the things he said was really important around, you know, we expect the government, the government has a role in trying to stop people and trying to safeguard young people from traveling to a war zone. It just simply does, and not only for their own sake, but to protect society as well. Um, so I, I think there is definitely a role to play. I worry about some of the, the government's policies. I, I worry about the constant singling out of the Muslim community, c creating more of a sort of us versus them division, that which I think just feeds the problem. Um, on the other hand, I don't have much uh, patience for those who don't, who just completely criticize the government and prevent and don't offer any solutions. And what I want to say to them is, well then what should we do? Should we do simply nothing and let our children and let, let kids just go off into a war zone? That's, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's not an answer either. So I think the government's doing a lot of good things. Um, this is an extremely difficult policy area. I mean, the UK is really leading the way in this and even coming up and trying to come up with a sort of prevent policy and it's really, it has evolved, um, and I think there are good parts to it, um, but I think there are other parts that, that need um, further development, really. Yeah, I think there are big challenges around the prevent strategy. And I mean, you'll know that in British universities and schools, you know, there's now a sort of prevent, prevent campaign uh, being run uh, in order to, in order to, 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 to stop teachers bec um, effectively becoming policemen and being put into a, an invidious role, which is the new, uh, the new move. I mean, I absolutely agree with Jonathan so what else do we do? And you know, your work and the work of others uh, in proving that there isn't necessarily a, a connection between non-violent extremism and violent acts and the individuals who carry out violent acts and the um, sort of ending the, the in, an, in the academic world but not yet in the political world. I mean, most academics around this now agree that there is no such thing as a conveyor belt um, moving naturally along from radicalization towards violent extremism. Um, but nevertheless, there is this you know, non-violent radicalization, which is also potentially a problem. Um, and so what do we do with it? And how do we deal with it? The, w the big danger of prevent that I can see is that it actually has stopped mosques and uh, uh, Islamic community centers from discussing these issues in ways that they would really like to because as soon as you start talking about Syria or any of these other buzzwords uh, you immediately think that you're going to be uh, uh, called, it, called into the police so it's pushed down below the underground the sorts of discussions that should be happening in the open um, uh, in mosques in, and, and community centers with, with people who might you know these wise Islamic clerics who might be able to uh, discuss these things in it in a slightly different and way. And also amongst kids, as the kids in the play were Absolutely. saying, they, they don't feel comfortable they, they talking fear, about you know, this. They fear, there was, a, there was this wonderful uh, uh, fatuous uh, moment when police were called into a primary school because one of the children said, I live mm. in, a, in a terrorist house. Um, and he, he meant terrorist house, but he misheard <laughs> his parents. 
Um, and that sort of sense of, uh, you know, it, I mean, it sounds funny, but the police did have to be called because under the, under the as we heard, Shiraz Maha, I'm going to report all my class all the time. You know, that's mm. the only safe way of working mm. as a teacher. I had dinner with somebody last night who's mentoring young people, and she's had the prevent training, and she said she would have no idea. She, she didn't feel any more comfortable uh, with what the training she'd had. But, and Jonathan's, but Jonathan's question, so what else do we do? Well, just, let's come to Tasneem. Well, first of all, I think in terms of the government thinking that's been pushed out, that it proves the government's anti-Semitic um, because they simply don't seem to have a duty towards our young Jewish British people who go and join the IDF and go to, go to uh, fight in, in Gaza, really. So the idea that we have one route, one rule for people who go off to Syria because we owe a duty of care to stop them from killing themselves. But we don't have another rule for our, our Jewish-British brethren who are going over to join the IDF and potentially put themselves in danger. You can't compare the IDF, though, with, with, with ISIS. I mean, the IDF is, a, is, a, is an army from a, from a properly constituted country. And what's the difference? Will you, will you think IS is an army from a properly constituted well, I, I country? Think, well, we heard earlier that they are a proper army. Uh, they've been in, they've, they're from Chechnya, they're from Bosnia, they're well-trained, and actually, when it comes to a bullet in the head of our British children, it doesn't matter, does it? We want to stop it equally. Um, well, you wouldn't expect me to agree with that, <laughs> uh, and I don't. Um, I, I would say that we do, uh, the police do uh, treat this the same way. Uh, you mentioned, the, 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 for instance, the Kurdish group, uh, YPF, isn't it, I think? YPG. YPG, sorry, YPG. Um, there have been many stops and arrests of YPG uh, sympathisers in the UK, um, former military here that have gone out to fight for the YPG have been arrested. Um, so, you know, and it's, it's just not true that we don't treat, uh, we treat one in isolation and not in the others. I mean, there have been a lot of arrests as well and convictions of the extreme right wing um, individuals over the years. Um, some, some very, uh, you know, uh, strong cases in the last couple of years. And again, animal rights extremism, uh, Sikh extremism, Tamil extremism, you know, so it's, this is not a singling out of, of one particular form of extremism or terrorism. Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, a number of things I was going to say. So, I mean, yeah, the, ch the, channel, the channel program, which um, uh, if, if, you're, if you're a teacher or frontline worker, so this is the, the recent development is making prevent a statutory duty. So frontline workers now have a statutory duty um, to safeguard uh, young people uh, who they uh, are concerned about who are being potentially radicalized in the same way that they would have to safeguard children if they were concerned about them being involved in drugs and alcohol or sexual child sexual exploitation or gang violence. And I think, I, I think that, that's safeguarding. that does make I mean, sense. In the play itself as well, that safeguarding is quite different, isn't it? Because this is safeguarding where the person is at risk, is the, is the risk rather than the person is at risk? Um, no, it, well, I don't know about that. I think it's a bit of both, really. Um, especially but it's different to traditional safeguarding in that way. Um, perhaps, yes. But I think you can also say that nonetheless, I mean, this is young, these are young people that also pose a risk to themselves. Um, you know, and, and it just so happens they also pose a risk to society, and that's incredibly important as well, and that's why um, you know, the government has a, 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 a certainly has a, has a remit to, to try and tackle this and prevent this. Um, but I do think it's right to actually um, sort of mainstream this to all frontline workers and take it out of just the realm of police. Because mm. obviously there's a role for police in the more hard-edged counterterrorism side of things. But this is when trying to address this as a sort of social movement. Mm. And I think the channel intervention, there are a number of 
far-right young people, young people being sucked into the far-right ideology. And I'm sure many people who might be critical of Prevent, because it tackles, because it just addressed Muslims, would be very happy to support it if it is, is preventing young people from joining um, the English Defense League and far-right terrorist groups. And you know, I, I worry that we're going to see a rise of these groups in response to the refugee crisis um, that we're seeing in Europe. So I think you know, it, it, the, it's absolutely the government strategy addresses both, and I think that's right. Well, yeah, I entirely agree with that, and I, th I just would like to say that the police do not want to lead on Prevent. Um, you know, they've been leading on Prevent really by default. Um, Prevent is about dealing with vulnerability. It's not about dealing with criminality. It's about picking up, particularly youngsters, but also perhaps um, those who are mentally challenged um, or have learning difficulties or who are vulnerable in other ways. It's about picking up their vulnerability to extremism at the earliest possible stage and then making interventions. Most of those interventions are non-police. You know, it's, no, it's not a police role to, 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 to uh, deal with a vulnerable youngster and uh, try and uh, dissuade them and take them off, off a course that they're on to, towards becoming an extremist or becoming further down the track. Um, I do accept, by the way, that it's not necessarily a, a conveyor belt. But I think there is there's still a there's still a, a, a very real, uh, if you like, synergy between um, extremism and thoughts. You know, whether it's extreme right wing, whether it's Sikh, Irish, or whatever extremism, um, and then violence that at some stage uh, can be perp perpetrated. Um, but the Prevent program is not police led, but it's been police led by default. We need other agencies to step in. We need the schools and the teachers to spot vulnerability and just to to, to raise it up and just say, I can see a vulnerability here, and then the interventions can take place and we can do genuine prevent, mm. you know. Okay, Justine, your response. Yeah, in, term <coughs> in terms of prevent, I have some sympathy with the police about, about that, actually. Uh, they, they are not the organization for it, and I agree that they, it has fallen on their shoulders quite wrongly to, to be seen as a lead on that. <coughs> uh, the strategy itself, um, is one that on paper when you read it, it looks reasonable. The actual effect of it uh, has been somewhat pernicious. I it has evolved from 2011 into some uh, completely different animal now. And putting it on a strategy footing has led to you know, a massive increase in the number of young people refer to the scheme. And we, I think we have 5,000 now plus on, on the channel scheme, 80% of which are Sorry, is it? Yeah, on the referred on the prevent scheme, eighty percent of which were were malicious or weren't actioned any further. So we have a huge number of people being pushed through, completely wrongly. Um, in, in Can I just? Yeah. Yeah, but there's a, it's important to understand that there's a triage system. If your if a referral is made, a very quick assessment is done, and to be honest, if it's malicious, it'll be knocked on the head almost instantaneously. The numbers that actually go on then to a channel program, the numbers of youngsters or, 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 or vulnerable individuals, is very small indeed. It's not 5,000. Um, so you know, the triage will, will work. And actually, what we're finding with that triage is that a lot of these youngsters are being, then, are being then directed to other agencies, social services, psychiatrists, where they can get the help they need, um, which is often nothing to do with extremism. It's to do with other things. Okay, wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks <coughs> to my brilliant panel. Please give them a round of applause.